Welcome to Cato Audio for February 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Brian Doherty takes us inside the Heller case that affirmed an individual right to keep and bear arms. David Friedman speculates about what technologies may affect human existence in the future and how we might adapt to them. Economist and author Russ Roberts discusses the counterintuitive nature of spontaneous order, and Cato Institute Chairman Emeritus William Niskanen shares a concern for the political capitalism now swirling in Washington. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. I'm talking now with Cato Institute Senior Fellow Mike Tanner and Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. And they're both co-authors of the Cato Institute book, Healthy Competition. This promises to be a big year for health care. Now, President Barack Obama made that uh, key plank of his uh, platform. In fact, duked it out with Hillary Clinton for uh, quite a while in the primary season about uh, which plan was better from the perspective of these two gentlemen in the room. I suspect that uh, was a useful debate, but probably a troubling one. So what can we expect from Barack Obama and this stronger Democratic Congress regarding health care this year? Well, Barack Obama and a number of Democratic members of Congress have put forward health care plans. So too has Barack Obama's Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Daschle, And there are a lot of common themes to all of these plans. So they're different in the particulars, but the common themes include most of them would like to have a new government health insurance program for people under age 65, modeled on Medicare. Most of them would have what has been called a health insurance exchange, where individuals would purchase health insurance in a very heavily regulated environment, an exchange that's set up by the government and monitored by the government with price controls on health insurance, mandated minimum benefits packages that people would have to purchase. Another common element would include government direction of things like comparative effectiveness research, health information technologies. And a lot of those duties would be, at least in Mr. Daschle's ideal world, would be subsumed under what I call a federal health rationing board. He wants to create a federal health board that's modeled on the Federal Reserve Board to sort of remove it from political accountability to some degree and let that board make many of these decisions that would have to be made in government programs and the health insurance exchange. What kind of coverage would be mandated? What would the premiums be? How much will doctors be paid? Whether particular treatments will be covered? And so what emerges from all of these different plans is much more government control over people's healthcare dollars and healthcare decisions and also less accountability for the decisions that government's going to be making that are going to affect people's lives. We also can expect uh, mandates to be an important part of whatever plan. All the Democratic plans seem to agree on the idea that there'd be an employer mandate of some kind, that employers would be required to provide health insurance for their workers. Generally, they talk in some way about exempting what they refer to as the smallest businesses, but they never seem to define that. So it could end up businesses of five or ten but everyone else would have to provide health insurance. An individual mandate is also likely. During the campaign, of course, then-candidate Obama opposed an individual mandate. However, the other Democratic plans tend to lean in that direction, and the logic of it, given the rest of their plans, seems inescapable that it will go down to an individual mandate route, something that, unfortunately, a lot of Republicans also seem to be buying off on. And then finally, there's enormous subsidies in all these plans. They would subsidize people earning three or 400 percent of the poverty level to participate in these plans, possibly even higher. 
so there's going to be a great deal of spending. There's no doubt that these plans will cost a huge amount of money. During the campaign, then candidate Obama estimated that his plan would cost about $65 billion. Several independent estimates put that cost well over $100 billion, as much as $150 billion, and it probably would go up from there. Candidate Obama also said that if you like your health insurance provider, you'll get to keep your health insurance What have independent analysts said about that, Mike Tanner? Well, you'll get to keep it as long as it's the type of plan that President Obama wants you to have. Essentially, if you're going to mandate that people have health insurance or that employers provide health insurance, you have to define what health insurance is. And all the plans talk about the idea of some government board or something determining a standard benefits package that all plans will have to offer. So if they decide that a plan has to offer, say, contraceptive coverage or chiropractic care, and your plan currently doesn't have it, you will have to give up the plan you have now and buy a plan that contains the coverage they want you to have. Letting the government determine what qualifies as health insurance and what doesn't qualify as health insurance, this has been tried in Massachusetts, has it not? Well, uh, it's part of the overall plan in Massachusetts that they had this connector which could determine which plans were sold under the connector. And, of course, the process became immediately politicized as various interest groups began demanding that they be included under the requirements for what constitutes meeting the mandate in Massachusetts. For example, they're now phasing in a requirement that all plans in Massachusetts will have to cover prescription drug coverage. They limited the overall lifetime payout or lifetime uh, limit under insurance. They limited the size of the deductibles that people could have under the insurance. So people in Massachusetts who had plans they were perfectly happy with that didn't meet these requirements under the new mandate up there are now having to give up their plans and buy new ones. What's happened in Massachusetts is going to be watched very closely this year because a lot of people are looking at that as a model, as an example that the federal government can follow. But Massachusetts is not the success that it's been hailed to be. In order to achieve universal coverage or near universal coverage, they're not covering everyone in Massachusetts. But to get close, the state basically said, all right, we're going to increase health spending on health care in three ways. We're going to get more federal spending into Massachusetts. We're going to have the state itself spend more by raising taxes on state residents and employers. And we're going to mandate that private individuals spend more. So one of the reasons why Massachusetts has been hailed as a success by supporters is because when you diffuse the costs of the program that way, pushing half of the costs onto the federal government and pushing much of the rest off onto the private sector in the form of mandates that don't show up in government budgets, it's much easier to make it look like this is not a costly program. But even though Massachusetts has done those two things, the chunk of money that Massachusetts itself, the state itself has to come up with, that is growing And they don't have the funds to meet those obligations under reform. So they're already talking about increasing taxes on employers in Massachusetts. And the employers are starting to protest about that. So that's a fight that's going to play out this year. It's going to be very important because it's going to influence the course of reforms at the federal level. Michael Tanner? We should also take a little bit of a lesson on the mandate portion of the Massachusetts plan up there, that it has not been successful in getting universal coverage, which is what everyone claimed. There has been a reduction in the number of uninsured in Massachusetts. They've cut the number of uninsured about in half. But the evidence strongly suggests that that is from the huge subsidies 
that the plan encourages. About two-thirds of the newly insured are people who are covered in some way by subsidized insurance now, getting their insurance paid for by the government, by the taxpayers. This shows that if you throw enough money at things, people will buy uh, whatever is free or reduced cost, but it doesn't show that a mandate necessarily will go out and cover everybody. And in addition to mandates and subsidies, and this is what I found to be something of a strange part of the Obama health care plan, was the idea of having private insurance plans competing with government-run plans, and that seems to be something that uh, gives the government, again, greater control over what is offered in the marketplace. Well, that's a refrain that you hear from the left is, we're just going to have the government compete on a level playing field against private health insurers and may the best plan win. In principle, that sounds fine. Supporters of free markets like that sort of competition because that's what brings out the best in the private industry. But to say that you're going to have open and fair competition between a government plan and private health insurers is a little like saying this NBA game is fair even though the ref has money going on one of the teams. The government not only sets up the rules of competition, enforces the rules of competition, it has its own plan that's competing, and it has the power to subsidize that plan at the expense of others. We're not going to get anything at all resembling fair competition. And I think what what we really need to keep in mind when we're looking at these plans is, yes, Barack Obama, Senator Max Baucus, Secretary Daschle, Senator Ron Wyden, these folks have proposed plans that would preserve a role for private health insurers. But they are not preserving a role for private choice. What they're doing is they're setting up mandates which will eliminate affordable health insurance options. They're imposing price controls on health insurance that will eliminate comprehensive insurance options, slowly marching all Americans into either a public plan or a narrow range of private plans that really resemble the public plan. And so whether you have public or private coverage under any of these plans, you are essentially in a government-run healthcare system because the government is making the choices about whether you will purchase health insurance, what you will purchase, how much you will pay, how those benefits will be delivered. What they're really proposing is socialized medicine with the word private hung over the door. Mike Tanner? And we should recognize that back when he was a candidate, Barack Obama said that given his preferences, he would have a single-payer system. That's what he actually prefers. He just didn't think you could get there all at once. And if you look at these democratic plans, what they do is they squeeze health insurance, private health insurance from all directions. They talk about allowing people age 55 into Medicare to bring more people in at the top. They increased Medicaid and S-CHIP just recently, allowing the states to cover people up to 400% of the poverty level under S-CHIP and removing restrictions for even single adults or pregnant women to be able to participate in S-CHIP. So you're bringing people in from the bottom. Then you put in a competition with this subsidized government plan to compete with people in the middle. And basically, you squeeze out the private insurance market completely. What we want ultimately out of health care is to have as many people as possible to be able to afford some health care, health coverage. There's a difference there, of course. But what should health care look like in the United States? Where should Barack Obama as president, where should he be going with trying to make changes to our broken health care system? If you want to improve America's health care system, if you want to make health care more affordable, make health insurance more affordable, what you need is more freedom, not more government. More freedom will make health insurance more affordable because if you give people the freedom to purchase health insurance from another state, then they can shop for her insurance nationwide and find a plan that's more affordable for them. If you give people the freedom to control their health care dollars and you deregulate health insurance, health care clinicians, then what you'll find is 
you will find a growth in the types of health plans that do the sort of research that tell us what works and what doesn't so that we can eliminate a lot of the waste in America's healthcare sector. If you want more coordinated care, those same steps will encourage sorts of health plans that provide coordinated care so that doctors are talking to one another, not giving you unnecessary services, and they're avoiding the medical errors that have been estimated to kill two and a half to five times as many people as the lack of insurance. So Barack Obama and his fellow Democrats in Congress are proposing is really that we're in a hole and what we should do is we should keep digging. I don't think the answer is to do that. I think the answer is to stop digging and move in the opposite direction. Look, when you take your dog to the vet, the dog doesn't get a whole lot of decision-making power. And the reason is that someone else is paying the bill. It's the old story of he who pays the piper calls the tune. Under our current system, insurance companies, the government, and basically your employer, they control all the money. They get to make all the decisions. What we've talked about from the beginning at the Cato Institute is let's take that money, give it back to you as the consumer, and then you get to make the decisions about your health care. There are some longstanding impediments to individuals being able to or having the full authority to go out into the private market and make purchases of their own health insurance. What are they? Well, the biggest one is a tax penalty imposed on people who want to control their own health insurance decisions. If you purchase health insurance on your own, you have to do so with after-tax dollars, but an employer can purchase health insurance for you with pre-tax dollars, which is why 9 out of 10 Americans under age 65 who have health insurance get it from an employer. Because if you don't, you pay an extra 30% tax, basically, on your health insurance. So that herds all Americans into an employer-based system where employers get to control a large chunk of the workers' earnings. One thing that uh, that I think that the McCain campaign had going for it was Senator McCain's proposal to level the playing field between the uh, employer-based insurance market and and the what we call the individual insurance market, where people purchase insurance directly from an insurance company. That would have allowed workers to recapture the the, the portion of their earnings, about nine thousand dollars for those with the family plan, that their employer currently controls. Take that money and purchase health insurance that stays with them from job to job if that's what they want to do. The other is essentially regulatory monopolies. It is illegal right now to purchase your health insurance out of state. If you live in a state like New Jersey or New York or Massachusetts where the regulatory environment has driven up the cost of health care, you can't go online and go to insurance or whatever and find a cheaper plan in someplace like Idaho or Kentucky and buy that insurance. It's illegal for you to do so, which uh, seems remarkably unfair. Uh, we wouldn't accept that with any other market. And then there are physician licensing and scope of practice laws which prevent competition within the provider market as well and drive up the cost of procedures and providers just the way any other monopoly does. Well, we've painted sort of a dark picture of what we're likely to see in various healthcare plans moving forward with a strong Democratic Congress and President Obama, who has made healthcare a big part of his plank. But how likely is that? You know, we've said that the 1993 health care plan that Bill and Hillary Clinton put together sort of fell apart. What would keep that from happening this time? Well, I think we're in a very high-risk environment right now because a lot of the people who were opposed to Hillary Care back in 93, the business community, the doctors, the insurance companies are sort of uh, negotiating the best surrender terms they can find right now. They're saying, what's in it for me? Can you buy me off? They're not necessarily allied in opposition to this. And even some of the uh, conservative think tanks inside the Beltway have bought into a lot of the premises behind the democratic plans, things like mandates and exchanges. 
So I think that there's far fewer allies in the fight for free market care right now. It's really going to take action on the part, I think, of individuals. It's going to be a grassroots rebellion. People listening to these broadcasts are going to have to get involved. It might even be worse than that because it appears that the Obama administration does not want to repeat the mistakes of the Clinton administration. They're not going to come up with a plan that they're going to cram down Congress's throats. They have been doing a lot of things since the election to build up a grassroots army to support their plan. So that has me very troubled. I'm a little bit comforted by the fact that all the corners of the healthcare industry and the health insurance industry that are making nice-nice with the administration right now and congressional Democrats, they're doing that because so far no decisions have been made about how they're going to pay for health care reform. They want to be at the table because they don't want to be on the menu. But when President Obama or the leaders in Congress decide exactly how they're going to pay for all these promises that they've made, that's when you're going to see some health insurers, some physician groups, some pharmaceutical companies, medical device manufacturers perhaps, starting to say, wait a second, we can't be for this. And then I think freedom, you know, the forces for freedom are going to get some allies in the industry because there will be members of the industry who are going to oppose this. But I'm not sure that that's going to be enough. Like Mike said, I think that everyone within earshot should be very concerned that we are going to take a dramatic step towards socialized medicine this year and should be doing everything that they can to stop it. And Michael, as you've so ably pointed out, that this is the big one as far as economic liberty is concerned. If we lose this fight and they create a huge national health care program, much the way they've done with Medicare and Social Security and so on, it may be generations before we can get that freedom back. That's right. And other freedoms, because Bill Clinton demonstrated in the 1990s that the best way to block tax cuts is to paint them as a threat to your health care. That's what his Medicare, Medicaid, education, and the environment spiel was mostly about. He was trying to tell people Republicans want to cut taxes, and that is going to threaten your health care. Well, right now, 28% of the American public get their health care from the government. If we increase that by 40 million people, as Barack Obama wants to do, or by even more with subsidies for private coverage, then it's going to be that much harder to reduce the size of government through tax cuts because advocates of big government will be able to pull that Clinton-esque strategy out once again. And it will be effective. It was effective in the 1990s. That's why he succeeded in beating back the Republican budgets. Everyone's got a stake in this one. This is not an issue people can say, well, it's not going to affect me. Uh, I've got health care. I can pay to go elsewhere. I can leave the country because it's too bad. This is one that everybody's got to get involved in. All right, gentlemen, we'll have to leave it there. The book by... Cato Institute Senior Fellow Mike Tanner and Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, is Healthy Competition. Thank you for uh, talking with me, gentlemen. You can get a copy of that book at Cato.org. In June 2008, the Supreme Court finally made clear that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms. Reason Magazine's Brian Doherty talked about the case and its implications for the future of gun ownership at a November Cato Book Forum for his book, Gun Control on Trial. 
As of now, uh, if I understand the latest correctly, Chicago and Oak Park are the only two of these Chicago area municipalities that are remaining obdurate in their defense of their gun regulations. Other cities in the Chicago area, including ones that weren't even sued, have quickly backpedaled and are now allowing their citizens to practice their Second Amendment rights. This includes Morton Grove, the famous home of the what's understood to be the first complete handgun ban outside D.C., Wilmette, and Winnetka. The city of Evanston has tried to uh, weasel out of the NRA lawsuit by amending their law to say it's okay to have a handgun if said handgun is kept at the residence of said person for self-protection. Evanston, because of this, is trying to moot the case. Steve Halbrook, the NRA's lawyer, is opposing that motion on the grounds that the ban, since it continues on having a gun any place outside the residence, creates a catch-22 about how a handgun could ever actually lawfully get into the residence and that they should just allow possession for any lawful purpose. Now, there's an important question that has to be decided in the context of any of these cases, which was not decided by Heller and couldn't be by nature, which is a question of whether the Second Amendment right actually applies to states and localities and not just the federal government. It's a question that lower, some lower federal circuits might feel because of the standard interpretation of the 19th century cases Presser and Cruikshank. They might feel that this has to be settled by the Supreme Court because most people read those Supreme Court decisions as stating that the Second Amendment does not apply to the states, even post-14th Amendment. Some of the filings I've seen uh, in some of the Chicago area cases and in a California case called Nordyke v. King have made extremely convincing arguments that it was the clear intent of the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment to claim the Second Amendment as a core right of the very variety that the 14th Amendment was meant to apply to state and local governments, that it was a core right, the very sort of post-war Southern codes that restricted blacks from owning weapons were some of the major impetus for the 14th Amendment existing to begin with. But this question has not yet been decided by the courts, and that will be the next frontier defining how important and how influential Heller will end up being. And that decision may come down in one of the Chicago cases. It may come down in Nordyke v. King in California, but uh, it can be expected at least in the Seventh or Ninth Circuits to come down soon. Now, I'll wrap up by talking a little bit about something that happened this month that uh, many in the gun rights community think is maybe even more important than the Heller decision, and in many ways, in every way, much worse than the Heller decision, which is the election of uh, Barack Obama as president of the United States. He's a man with a history of disrespect for personal gun possession rights, and he has nominated as attorney general Eric Holder a man uh, with an even worse record, a man who, in fact, uh, was openly in the signing of uh, amicus briefs on the side of D.C. in D.C. versus Heller. Both men have been strong supporters of restrictive gun control. Obama did, however, in his campaign, at least feel politically pressured to state that he does agree with the gist of the Heller decision, does believe the Second Amendment protects an individual right. And while I don't cast a great deal of weight on the sincerity of that declaration, I do cast a great deal of weight on the fact that he felt it necessary to make it in the first place. While uh, I don't doubt that in his heart and Holder's heart is very little respect for gun rights, I think both of them are politically savvy enough and that the memory of 1994 and 2000 are still fresh enough to the Democratic Party and 2010 is close enough that I think it's very unlikely that acting on his impulse toward gun control on the federal level is going to be very high on his list of things to do. And uh, I was talking 
guy out in California named Irvin Nowick who keeps a very close eye on these issues. He also talked to someone who was in on conference calls between uh, both Reid and Pelosi uh, from the Senate and the House who have also confirmed that neither are eager to make uh, their houses be the ones to make any first move on federal gun regulations. And it's also worth remembering that whatever it is Obama may try to do or his administration may try to do, the gun rights community has something that it didn't have during the Clinton era. It has the Heller decision, which uh, does state uh, that complete gun bans are off the table. And that was certainly vitally important to the gun rights decision moving forward. And it was important not just to people who were concerned with gun rights, of course. It was really vitally important to American public policy in general because it normalized within constitutional law the notion that self-defense is a right. And I think it's very important to remember that self-defense is what this was all about. We all know that guns can be dangerous and guns can kill. But the principle that Heller vindicated, a principle that's at the core of Western liberalism, self-defense, is not about killing, it is for life. Now, those who believe in a strong act of his government generally do so because they fear and understand the potential savagery of human social life. They just, when it comes to gun control, they don't seem to want to allow the individual to do anything about it. And now, thanks to the work of the lawyers and plaintiffs in the Heller case, we know that the Constitution says we can. So, It was a very encouraging thing indeed for me as a long-term libertarian to be able to get deep into this story and report on it because it really is one of the most encouraging and important victories, a case of uh, ideologically dedicated, freedom-minded people pushing a set of ideas against great odds, against great derision for many decades, finally finding the right strategic place to strike and achieving an extremely important victory that's really going to change the shape of this country in important and good ways down the line. It's easy to see a big plan executed. It produces tangible results that flow from a designer's blueprint. What we often forget is that so much of what makes human civilization is not the product of any central design. George Mason University economist Russ Roberts explores these ideas in his new book, The Price of Everything, a parable of possibility and prosperity. He talked about spontaneous order and its counterintuitive nature at a December Cato Book Forum. The central idea in the book really is that there are things in this world that are orderly and yet are not the result of human design. And this concept of things that are orderly but not designed is a very alien concept to us. We know in our lives that Things have to be orderly most of the time only if we design them, only if we intend to do something about them, only if we take action to fix them. They don't fix themselves. So if we want the dishes done, we have to do them. The leaves don't rake themselves. The driveway doesn't shovel itself. We have to make a plan on when and how to execute those tasks, and we do so. So most of our life is involved in making things happen, and we're not In fact, we're usually judged very harshly if we stand back and let things take their own course. Uh, An exception from that in our daily experience would be our thermostat. We don't have to constantly monitor our heat or air conditioning. We're totally used to the idea that the thermostat's going to do it for us. We have to set it. We have to build it. We have to put it installed in the house. But we're totally comfortable with the idea that the thermostat's going to run our heating and cooling. And the reason that that works is because there's a feedback loop. So if it gets too cold in the house, the little wire in the thermostat expands or contracts. Anybody know? 
it gets cold, what happens to the wire? It does something. It's like, you know, it's like a thermos bottle. Somehow it knows whether to make it hot or cold. How does it know? We don't know that it's beyond human understanding. But in the case of a thermostat, there are people who understand. I'm just not one of them, which is irrelevant. We all understand the idea of the thermostat, which is that there's a little wire in there, and when it gets too hot or cold, it does something that sets the furnace on or off, and similarly with the air conditioning. And that feedback loop of the external temperature and the expansion of the thing inside the thermostat is the thing that allows it to run itself. We're totally comfortable with that in our own house, but we often ignore the fact that there are feedback loops out in the real world that help our world be orderly without anyone designing it. We don't notice it. So, for example, when a few hundred million Chinese go from the countryside into Chinese cities and start sending their kids to school and their kids start using pencils, somehow there's still enough pencils for you and me. And that is a remarkable thing that you probably didn't spend a lot of time worrying about. You're not worried about it over the next five years that you're going to have a pencil shortage. You're going to show up at Staples and say, I'm here to get pencils. And they say, well, we don't have any. Well, why not? Well, the Chinese have all of them this year, of course. Come back in a year. We'll have some for you. That kind of disorder, disharmony is totally alien to us. People figure out these two really cool things, one dramatically more important than the other. One is that by using a laser, you can improve your vision so that you don't need glasses or any kind of correction. The other is laser tag. Anybody here play laser tag? Okay, I don't. I've never played it. I hear it's fun, but people love it. But we also have laser eye surgery. No one says, oh, well, you know, we don't have enough laser stuff around for everybody to have both of these. We get both of them without any trouble. If you decide, as Americans have decided over the last 25 years in increasing in different times and in different levels of intensity, that we want to be more fit and eat better, all of a sudden there are all these products waiting for us. There's Special running shoes, special racquetball shoes, special diet, special books, special fitness machines, special trainers, special videos. All that stuff is out there for us if we want it, and millions of Americans do, and it just gets created as a response to that opportunity when people want to get healthier and more fit. At the same time, we get many, many flavors of potato chips. We don't say, well, you know, we got to spend our resources over here for fitness. Too bad, you couch potatoes who want to have the jalapeno potato chips. I mean, there's innovation going on all around. A lot of it trivial, like the potato chips or the laser tag, right? But a lot of it extraordinary and sublime, like being more fit and living longer or getting laser eye surgery. And as a result, we all get many of our choices fulfilled without the tension and conflict that should take place in adjudicating between who's going to get the resources to pursue their dreams, because there's not enough resources to go around for all the dreams. So there should be tension and conflict, as there was, of course, in many societies that were organized from the top down rather than most of our economy, which is from the bottom up. An example of the top-down approach came vividly to me, and I tell a version of this story in my second book, The Invisible Heart, when I was helping a Russian family from the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, this was in the early 90s. They had just come to the United States. They had very little experience with the market economy, obviously, and I got to take them to the grocery. And we spent about 10 minutes in the produce section, which was really extraordinary, and they were just wowed by it. It was touching to actually to see how lovingly they looked at fruits and vegetables. Uh, it's not an experience most of us have. We totally take that for granted, that cornucopia of produce. And then we went in through the rest of the store and the wife wanted to bake bread. 
and she wanted to get some yeast. And yeast is a very small product. It doesn't take up a lot of shelf space. It takes up about this much. There's no wall of yeast. And it can be either in the dairy section, if it's the live yeast, or it can be the dry yeast, which is usually near the flour. We looked in both places. We couldn't find it. And I was kind of embarrassed because I'd been you know, excited about this great American shopping experience. And I had to go to the manager. I said, is there any, is there any, oh yeah, let me get, go in the back. Let me make sure. He went in the back, he found it. They hadn't put out the latest bit. So they put it out and he gave me some. And uh, the woman looked at me, the Russian woman, like this. <laughs> mm, so he's a big shot. They bring out the yeast for him. It's very nice. She didn't realize what she was dealing with. So in her world, you know, who got the yeast was sometimes special people. Certainly who got the meat, who got the apartment, who got the phone, who got the car. In America, of course, it doesn't work that way. And that bottom-up system is really rather extraordinary. Our prosperity comes from the feedback loops of profit and loss that reward risk-taking and punish bad ideas. And that really is what guides innovation in our society, and it's really an extraordinary thing. Americans spend far more per capita than other nations on medical care. Defenders of America's health sector, such as Rudy Giuliani, claim it delivers superior health outcomes, such as longer cancer survival rates, Detractors claim that other nations' systems deliver equal or better health outcomes, such as longer life expectancy and better infant mortality rates. Who is correct? Glenn Whitman, Associate Professor of Economics, California State University, Northridge, talked about how the U.S. ought to think about its own health care outcomes at a Cato Policy event in December. Heart disease. How do we do in heart disease? The U.S., according to the best studies that we have available, is usually among the best among industrialized countries, but not the best. Sometimes we'll get outperformed by another country like Canada or Australia. But we at least seem to be competitive in that area. How about cancer? Cancer, the studies seem to indicate the U.S. is doing relatively well. The U.S. quite often has the highest survival rates for cancer. For instance, one study showed the U.S. outperforming Europe for 14 out of 16 different types of cancer. Various other studies have reached the same conclusions. However, we have to take these with a grain of salt. And the reason we have to do that is because these statistics may reflect not actual better treatment or better health care of the people who have been diagnosed, but instead just an earlier diagnosis. And obviously, if you diagnose somebody earlier, even without health health treatment, they're probably going to live longer than somebody who wasn't diagnosed until later in their illness. So it's very difficult to separate out these effects. An early diagnosis can lead to better better treatment, but it can also just increase the time gap between diagnosis and death. And I have yet to see any good studies that really control for this effect well to find out how much of the superior performance of the United States is attributable to better health care as opposed to earlier diagnosis. How about hypertension? In general, it seems that the United States People with the condition are better controlled, more often have the treatments that they need for their hypertension than other industrialized countries to which it's been compared. Again, the statistics are a little weak on this. How about kidney disease? Here's where other countries often outperform us. We tend to do worse than other countries to which we've been compared, both in terms of kidney transplants and kidney dialysis. How about stroke, diabetes, respiratory disease, traumatic events like car accidents and gunshot wounds, mental illness? Sadly, these are all areas in which 
in my judgment, there's simply no good evidence yet indicating whether the United States is doing better or worse than other countries. The studies just haven't been done in a methodologically sound fashion, or they haven't been done at all. And this is indicative of a larger problem, which is a lack of good data. If we want to have the information that we need to inform health policy, there's going to have to be a lot more specific studies done of specific conditions to find out how people are doing relatively in different countries. Finally, I think it's worth emphasizing again that survival rates for life-threatening conditions are not the be-all and end-all of healthcare. Healthcare does serve other purposes. We spend lots of money, for instance, on treatments for non-life-threatening conditions, such as acne. Now, I don't think acne's ever killed anybody. But if you have acne, it can be a big problem for you, and it's a great improvement in your quality of life if you can find a way to control that. That's something that never shows up in any of the health statistics, and that's why it can be misleading just to say, well, let's compare performance on life-threatening illnesses in the United States versus elsewhere and how much we spend. Well, gosh, we spend so much more and we're getting less, but we may not be getting less. We might be getting more of other things that simply aren't being measured. What about money spent to ease chronic pain? even if that pain is non-life-threatening. Even if it's not life-threatening, it's a very important matter to the people receiving the pain treatment that they are going to get that pain treatment in order to make their life better. Convenience also matters. If you have to wait an extra month before getting treatment for that annoying rash, then that matters to you, even if that rash was never life-threatening and it would never have any effect on life expectancy. So in these areas, there is some evidence, although again, it's sketchy, but it seems to point towards superior outcomes in the United States. These are things that the US healthcare system tends to deliver relatively well. So what's the bottom line? We should not expect a single statistic that is going to show that the US is definitely better than the rest of the world or definitely worse. Reality is going to be messy and healthcare quality has numerous factors. And it's entirely possible for us to do well on some of these factors and poorly on others. What we need to do is report these results as honestly and accurately as possible if we want to have a well-informed health policy debate. The saying goes, when your neighbor loses his job, it's a recession. And when you lose yours, it's a depression. So when a crisis strikes in the business community, it's a good time for failing firms and entrepreneurial regulators to make their cases in Washington. Cato Institute Chairman Emeritus William Niskanen discussed this kind of political capitalism at a policy event in October. In the late 1970s, I was the chief economist for Ford Motor Company. In the middle of the 1970s, there was no... Ford representation here in Washington, and there was no representation here in Washington by the American Automobile Association. And that developed only with an act called the uh, Fuel Economy Standards. The debate over that act led uh, the American Automobile Association to develop a substantial Washington representation. And at the time, the big three did not have any representation here, but they moved here starting in the late 1970s after they got into trouble competing with the Japanese and the thought that the government might uh, protect them against the Japanese for a period of time, as it turned out that they did, even under the Reagan administration. So I worry about this model of a sort of political capitalism is either an explanation for firms that fail, a lot of firms have succeeded all too well with support from the government, 
it's not a very good explanation of firms that fail because a lot of firms have failed without much of a role here in Washington or in the politics. And I worry about Enron as an example of uh, what's going to happen in the future or what's happening in 2008. Enron Clearly, the failure of Enron led to Sarbanes-Oxley, which is very bad legislation. But if Enron had failed one year later, there would have been no Sarbanes-Oxley Act, because by that time, the Republicans had recaptured the Senate in 2003, and I think there would have been no Sarbanes-Oxley Act in that case. If Enron's failure had not been followed by the WorldCom failure, I think there would have been no Sarbanes-Oxley Act. So it was a combination of a number of things just the particular timing of Enron's failure and the fact that it was associated with the failure of a much larger firm, WorldCom. Very few people have written very much about WorldCom, but it failed, I think, in June or July of 2002. And in July, late July, we got the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. So the Enron failure, I think, was kind of an accident, in part because of the timing of its failure and the failure of WorldCom, a much bigger firm at the same time. The one thing that we can learn from both the Enron episodes and the current problems in Wall Street and the financial community is that there are a lot of people around this town and around this country and maybe around the world who have a model of what the government ought to be doing, who use the occasion of a crisis in the business community as an occasion for making their case. There are lots of people who want the government to take much more extensive and severe controls over our economy than is now the case. And they used an occasion for something like the Enron failure or what's happening on Wall Street as the occasion for promoting very much more substantial legislation in controlling the economy. David Friedman, author of such books as The Machinery of Freedom and Hidden Order, has more recently turned his attention to the variety of technological revolutions that might happen over the next few decades, their implications, and how to deal with them. He argued at a Cato event for his book, Future Imperfect, that we don't know which future will arrive, but it is unlikely to be much like the past, so it's worth starting to think about it now. Let me take another one of the approximations we all take for granted, and that is that everybody is either alive or dead. All right. There are something over 100 people at the moment who arguably are neither. How do they get that way? Well, you're dying of an incurable disease, and you're a technological optimist. So what do you do? You arrange that one second after you're declared legally dead, when nothing has started to rot yet, your body is lowered to the temperature of liquid nitrogen, taking precautions to minimize but not eliminate the damage done by freezing you, and it's held in storage until two things happen. The easy one is finding a cure for your incurable disease. The hard one is finding a cure for being frozen. But if you're a technological optimist, you figure with luck those will both happen eventually, and after all, if you think the odds are bad, consider the alternative. This is called cryonic suspension. More than 100 people have done it. And the question is, what is their legal status? And I like to illustrate this by imagining that it happens to me. So my wife is a widow because I've been declared legally dead, so she remarries. My heirs inherit because I'm legally dead. And 10 years later, due to unusually fast technological progress, it is announced that they have thawed a dog and he barked. And it's obvious that pretty soon they'll be bringing back human beings. 
And a week later, my widow's new husband and my heirs break into the storage facilities at Alcor and smash the container holding my body. And when asked to explain this act of blatant vandalism, they say that they apologize, they will be happy to replace the storage container and compensate Alcor, but they could not stand having someone they loved maintained in such a parody of life. What crime have they committed? Vandalism. What crime have they not committed? Murder, because I'm already legally dead. So that nicely demonstrates why you would likely, at least if you believe there's a significant chance of reviving such people, why you would like the legal system and our ways of thinking. Think about the question, should he have married my widow? Was she a widow or a wife? Should she have felt free to marry? All of that you're going to have to revive. Second problem, and this was actually a real-world problem, is suppose you're dying, and this time the disease you're dying of is brain cancer, and by the time you're legally dead, there's going to be nothing left to revive. So you decide you'd rather be frozen right now, thank you. And you go to a California court and you ask them for a declaration that freezing you is not murder, it's just a very risky medical procedure, and the court says no. Real case, except that fortunately they ha- he went into remission, so I think he's still alive. All right, those are, I think, examples of the ways in which it changes the world. Let me run through some of my specifics. And I want to start with technologies which are associated with privacy, something people worry about a good deal. And there are two big ones which pull in opposite directions. The first one is encryption. And probably some of you actually know about public key encryption. A lot of people don't. I don't have time to go into the details. You can find at least some of it in the book. But basically, we now know how to do encryption in such a way that you can send a message to a stranger that only he can read. And we also know how to do it in such a way that you can send a message to a stranger that proves that the message is from you. And the you it can be from doesn't have to be a real space identity. It can be a cyberspace identity. I can, if I want to give legal advice illegally because I'm not a member of the California bar, I can set up a website for Legal Eagle Online, give away advice, assuming I was competent to do it, until I establish my reputation, sell advice, and when I sell the advice, prove that it's Legal Eagle Online who's giving this advice. That's what digital signatures do. That means we are going to have a future where it is possible to combine anonymity and reputation. And in some ways, that's wonderful. It means freedom of speech no longer depends on the views of the Supreme Court, only on the laws of mathematics, because it's real hard to convict anybody of a crime if you don't know who he is uh, or what continent he's on or whether he's male or female, old or young. There's no way of getting a bullet through a T1 line. So that what this gives you is, in a certain way, a libertarian paradise, a world where in cyberspace, instead of force and fraud, we have only fraud. And fraud, if you're careful, you can protect yourself against. It has some downsides, though, because one of the things it means is criminal firms with brand name reputations. And I worked through in the book my business plan for Murder Incorporated, which sells the services of hitmen and which, thanks to this new technology, is not limited to customers who are already in the criminal market, but you and I can use their services too. So I go through that in some detail, but I'm short on time, so I'm not going to. The other technology going in the other direction is surveillance. There's more of it in the UK than in the US. The basic idea is you put video cameras on poles in public places, and then if there's a mugging, you've got the evidence on who did it. And on the face of it, it sounds like a useful and harmless technology. It's just like having a cop standing there watching, except that he can do his watching sitting down and out of the rain. 
The problem comes when you add two more technologies. One of them is face recognition, and the other one is databases. And face recognition means that now those aren't just films you have to look through. Now, when the prosecutor, who's a little bit about, out of date, says to the defendant, where were you at 3 p.m. on Friday the 17th? Oops, I'm sorry, I don't have to ask that question. Types a little bit into the computer. There is the film showing you where you were at 3 p.m. on Friday the 17th. Because we now have films, we now have videos of everything that happened in a public place and maybe private places pretty soon because the video cameras are getting smaller and more mobile and pretty soon we'll have them down to the size and the characteristics of a mosquito. And all of that is now on the record, searchable, findable. So it gives you sort of a universal panopticon for the world, which is not a really happy idea. And David Brin has a book discussing this. His solution is, well, the cops can watch us, but we can watch them. To which my reply is, they can arrest us and we can't arrest them. There are certain asymmetries in that relationship. So the interesting question then is, what if we get both? What if we get both widespread use of public key encryption, what I call a world of strong privacy, and widespread use of surveillance with inappropriate, unfortunate technologies linked to it? Do we then have a very private or a very public world? And that depends on two things. The first is, can I control my interface with cyberspace? It does no good to have strong encryption if while I'm typing, there's a video mosquito watching my fingers. All right? So we need some way of interacting with cyberspace not observable in real space, and you can imagine different ways. Second question is, how much of what matters happens in cyberspace and how much in real space? And in my chapter on virtual reality, I suggest possible futures in which essentially everything that matters is in cyberspace. Your body is just lying in a cubicle, you know, pushing against resistance things for purposes of health, being fed soybean mush that tastes to you like sushi and Baskin-Robbins ice cream because with good enough virtual reality, full sense virtual reality, all senses we can synthesize as it were. And in that world, I don't care if there's a video mosquito watching my body lying in this cell, pedaling a, uh, a bicycle, essentially, because that's not what's happening. What's happening is me in cyberspace conspiring against the government or doing whatever thing I'm doing that I'm worried about their knowing about. Let me go on to biotech. And I want to start out with what I call libertarian eugenics which I attribute to Robert Heinlein in one of his least successful novels, but one of his most interesting novels, Beyond This Horizon. It was an early novel. And the idea is that what's wrong with eugenics is that eugenics generally involves my deciding whether you can have babies. And you're not allowed to have babies because I don't like your genes, and you've got to have babies because I like yours. Heinlein's system was a technology that each couple decide which of the babies they could have they did have. Because after all, any given couple, there are an enormous number of different ways their genes could be combined. And he worked out, I think, a reasonably plausible and perhaps in the not very distant future doable technology by which you can pick the sperm that doesn't have my genes for a bad heart but does have my mathematical ability, the egg that doesn't have my wife's poor circulation but does have her musical ability, combine the two and produce the ideal child. Now, it's true, we've already done it several times by pure chance, but this way the other people could do it too. Next bit of biotech. It may have occurred to you that everyone in this room is dying of an incurable and always lethal disease. We call it aging. Given the rate of technological progress over the past century, I think there is no reason to believe it will remain incurable. And you then have the very interesting question, if we can stop aging, perhaps even reverse aging, how does that affect the world? 
and the interesting question at the individual level. If you knew that you weren't going to get any older, maybe even if you would go back to, you know, whatever you think is the ideal, 30 or something, how would you live your life? Would you just keep doing whatever you're doing? Would you try to make enough money to retire and then play forever? Would you switch careers every 50 years or so? That's an interesting question. Another bit of biotech that is interesting, hopeful, and scary is the category of what I call mind drugs, that as we get to learn more and more about how the human mind works, we are going to be better and better at making drugs that affect the human mind. And there are at least three interesting categories. One of them is pleasure or happiness drugs, most of which are now illegal, a few exceptions. And if you believe that pleasure is superficial, make it happiness. It's pretty clear that some people you know are naturally happier than others. Uh, I can think of examples. Very likely that's just brain chemistry, so maybe we can fix it. The second category is performance drugs, ways of making us better able to do things with our mind. And the third category is control drugs, ways of making us better able to control other people. And that, of course, is the scary one, that there is no good reason to think that we won't have credulity drugs, for example, which you feed to somebody just before a business negotiation or an attempted seduction. And, I mean, that's, of course, an old one. You could argue that alcohol has been used that way for a long time, but we may have much improved versions. So that's an interesting thing to think about. Let me go on to what's, in some ways, certainly one of the most radical and interesting technologies, and that's nanotechnology. And the basic idea, some of you are familiar with it, is that all the things we build, like this little computer I'm reading my lecture notes off of, are built very crudely. The individual pieces of some crude object like a, a microchip, the individual pieces have enormous numbers of atoms in them, all right? We ourselves are engineered at the atomic scale. An enzyme, a DNA strand, is essentially a molecular machine. And Feynman proposed decades ago, and Eric Drexler has expanded on it in great detail, what you could do if we learned to engineer at the atomic scale, to build machines whose working parts were assembled from single atoms. And on the one hand, there are some very nice things you can do. For example, one person came up with a design for an improved red blood cell. It's basically a compressed oxygen tank, the size of a red blood cell. And it works out that if you inject enough of them into your bloodstream, so they're 1% or 2% of your red blood cells, and you then have a heart attack uh, a little bit later, you call up your doctor and you make an appointment because you've got two or three hours worth of oxygen sitting in your bloodstream. It doesn't have to move. All right. The improved version, however, is the cell repair machine. This is a, sub, a robot submarine much smaller than a human cell, and it just goes through your body fixing everything that's wrong. One solution to aging, among other things. Now, it will take a long time with one cell repair machine, but you're not limited to one because one of the really neat things about nanotech, once you can do it, is that you can create a general-purpose assembler. And this is a little molecular factory designed to take instructions and follow them for building molecular machines. From its standpoint, the world is a whole lot of Legos, carbon atoms, nitrogen atoms, they're all the same, pretty much, hydrogen, just plug them together according to the instructions, and you've got whatever you want. Furthermore, one of the things a general purpose assembler can build is a general purpose assembler. So I have two of them. And one of the things two general purpose assemblers can build is two general purpose assemblers. So very soon you have as many as you want. And that means that you get a million robot submarines to go through your cells instead of one. 
It also means that in principle, if you can solve the design problems, you can make very large machines designed at the molecular level or at the atomic level. That with a few modifications, diamond would make quite nice windscreens, windshields for cars. It's very hard. Diamond's just carbon. Carbon's cheap. So in the fully developed nanotech world, you download instructions for building a car, and you're going to need a very broad bandwidth system to download them because the instructions are going to be very, very long. You use them to program some, a whole lot of assemblers. You dig a pit in your backyard, making sure there's enough dirt to provide the aluminum because dirt's largely aluminum. You dump in a cup and a half of gasoline to have something that the assemblers can disassemble to get the energy for doing everything. You go to bed, and in the morning, there's your car. Now, you may say that's unbelievable, that that's obviously impossible, but how do you think oak trees get built? All right, they start out with instructions and assemblers built into the acorn. They get their power from the sunlight. They're slower than my version, but the basic principle is the same because living systems are nanotech. They're the demonstration we can do. All this is, sounds very nice, but there's a downside to nanotech. And the downside comes when somebody, either deliberately or accidentally, makes a much simpler nano device than a general purpose assembler. It only has one purpose in life, which is making copies of itself. And it uses commonly available elements, it uses sunlight to fuel it, and the rough estimate is that it takes about a week to turn the entire biosphere into copies of it. This is what we refer to in the literature as the gray goo scenario, because the entire world has been turned into gray goo. And it's scary enough so that some people, such as Eric Drexler, who are basically libertarians, still think maybe there's a case for government regulation to prevent things along those lines. You could also imagine uh, designer plagues, essentially, at the nanotech level. I'm not persuaded, and I'm not persuaded because as long as it's really hard to do nanotech, it's very unlikely to happen to accident. By accident, it's going to be done by big organizations, which are probably going to take precautions. And the only real danger then is the only kind of human organization that devotes large resources to figuring out how to kill people and smash stuff, and that's governments. And there seems a certain problem to giving governments a monopoly over nanotech in that world. And as nanotech gets easier, now maybe any really bright high school kid can do it in his basement – but along with the really bright high school kids with not many resources, there are going to be a whole lot of rich firms that are out there trying to make defensive nanotech because human beings really don't want to die. And therefore, in a world of uncontrolled nanotech, what you're going to have are very large resources going into protecting people against nanotech and other dangers. Very small private resources going into destructive nanotech. The only problem is going to be government resources going into destructive nanotech. And you aren't going to solve that problem by giving the government control over nanotech. More generally, I'm worried about centralized solutions. The only time in my life that I've been seriously scared about the literal survival of myself and those dear to me was a little while after 9-11 when I started looking into the subject of smallpox. And I discovered first that it was quite possible that t ingenious terrorists could get a hold of smallpox, even though it had supposedly been eradicated. That's easy. Get me and my family vaccinated. Sorry, we don't have the vaccine. All right, there was not enough, probably still isn't, maybe there is now, for anything more than doctors and nurses, roughly, and probably cops. And why? Because preventing contagious diseases is a government business, essentially. They control it. They decided the problem was solved, so why keep any spare? So from that standpoint, I think there's a lot to be said for decentralized solutions. All right, let me go on 
to another technology, which is both promising and scary. That's artificial intelligence. All right? We don't know what we are. It's a very old human puzzle, what human beings are. But our best guess, in my view, is that I am software running on the hardware of my brain. That fits what human beings are better than anything else we can describe. If that's right, as we get better and better at building hardware, we're going to get to the point where we can build programmed computers with human-level intelligence. All right. Raymond Kurzweil, a fairly important computer pioneer, he's the guy who designed the machines that let blind people read and that let you use computers to make music. He thinks we've got 30 years. His estimate is in about 30 years we can do human-level AI. And that's sort of exciting. It'll be very interesting. It raises lots of legal problems because these are going to be people very unlike all people we've known, and I discuss that a little in the book. But if computers keep getting faster as rapidly as they have been, and if in 30 years we have human-level AI, then in 40 years we are gerbils. Because in 40 years we are sharing the planet with beings 100 times smarter than we are. Right? That's scary. We hope they like pets. Now, Kurzweil has a solution. I won't go into that. Again, you'll discover it in the book. might even work, but it is one of my three ways of wiping out the human race, uh, along with biotech and nanotech. Virtual reality, I've already mentioned briefly. I would have said that World of Warcraft, again, is our best implementation of virtual reality at the moment, and it demonstrates that we don't really need the high-tech of goggles and all the rest of stuff. All you need is a computer screen, a speaker, and the really high-tech, which is the human imagination. And with that, you can get 10 million people who are living in a different world, interacting with thousands of people, some of them their friends, in a different world that was created by a, basically by artists. And I can easily imagine futures where a large part of human activity, whether as it does now through computer screens or in a science fiction version where you plug a cable into the back of your neck and you get full sense virtual reality, where a large part of human life is lived that way. And that then raises interesting philosophical questions. When we have this world where in real space we're all living in cubicles eating soybean mush and in virtual reality we are all living in mansions visiting a friend with a thought, we're there, let your fingers do the walking, is that heaven or hell? All right, some of you may know C.S. Lewis in Great Divorce who described something like that and he called it hell. I'm more ambiguous. I think that for certain purposes it's heaven, for certain purposes it isn't. The critical question is whether you are doing things where it matters whether they're done in real space. That creating food in, wor in, in World of Warcraft doesn't feed anybody. On the other hand, I don't care whether you read my book in real space or on the web because that's an information transaction and information transactions in cyberspace are just as real as elsewhere. All right, I'm getting to the end. One general conclusion I want you to reach is that the future is radically uncertain in both upside and downside ways, that predicting past maybe 30 or 40 years is pretty hopeless. One of the reasons that I'm against most of the things people want to do about global warming is that they depend on extrapolations 100 years out. I don't even know if we're going to be around 100 years from now. And if we are, it is very unlikely that human life will be enough like what it now is to make the calculations we're now making relevant. One question I end the book with, and I will let you think about it, is are there ways in which we can expect technological progress to make us worse off? Because that's been what everybody has been mistakenly predicting for 200 years, that Everybody would be unemployed, that various other bad things. So far, it hasn't been true. Closest we've come to it was nuclear weapons. 
And I discuss in the book why, although I am not predicting that it will make us worse off, it could make us worse off. Basically, because there is only one known way of solving the coordination problem, of getting hundreds of millions of people to interact in a way in which they all achieve their ends. And that's the decentralized property trade kind of model. That model depends on the effects of most human action being localized enough so that I can keep what I do to my own property or the property of people who have voluntary transactions with me. And as we get more and more powerful, that assumption may break down. So we may be down from one way of solving the problem to zero, which would be scary. And I think global warming, by the way, is a good example. As it happens, its scale is pretty small on present evidence, so it's not really much of a catastrophe compared to some of the others. But if it were a catastrophe, there's no good way of stopping it because not only is it a public good problem for individuals, it's a public good problem for nations. That from the standpoint of nations, why should I slow my development in order that you not get flooded, basically? And the answer is I won't. You could solve it with a world government. I think that's a cure worse than the disease, but I don't see any other way of doing it. With the presidential inauguration now in the rearview mirror, Gene Healy's book, The Cult of the Presidency, America's Dangerous Devotion to Executive Power, has become more valuable and prophetic than when first published. Like nearly all of Cato's books, The Cult of the Presidency is also available in ebook format. You can check out all of Cato's book offerings at catostore.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.